Welcome to the IVF Journey with Dr. Michael Chapman, the podcast for couples who struggle with infertility and want to fulfill their dreams of becoming parents. In this podcast, you'll learn actionable strategies to deal with infertility from Dr. Michael Chapman, or Prof as he's affectionately known. Prof is the co-founder of IVF Australia and is a leading Australian infertility specialist who has helped over 3,000 couples realise their dreams of becoming parents. To access previous episodes packed with ideas, solutions and tips that actually work, head over to Dr. Chapman's IVF podcast on iTunes. You can also ask questions by contacting Dr. Chapman's rooms on 1-800-111-483 or by emailing him michael.chapman at ivf.com.au. That first cry of a baby born after the long journey of IVF remains one of the most beautiful experiences in the world. As an obstetrician and an IVF specialist, I've had the privilege of experiencing this over many thousands of times in my long career, but I still remain moved by each baby's first cry. It signifies the end of a long journey and the beginning of a new life. This is Professor Michael Chapman, co-founder of IVF Australia and host of the IVF Journey podcast. Thanks for tuning in. To access all the previous episodes, head over to my website, www.theivfjourney.com and select IVF Journey Podcast from the navigation menu. You'll also be able to find the various services that we provide at IVF Australia. So today we're going to talk about something that I'm sure if you've been to a fertility specialist they've mentioned. They'll talk about something called ovarian reserve. So I'm going to try and explain what I mean by that and also a little bit about how we can test for it and then what those tests mean in terms of your chances of having a baby. When you are born, your ovaries have something on average, something in the order of a half a million eggs. It was even more than that when you were at 20 weeks in your mum's womb. So the deterioration in terms of numbers happens from almost the day that they are produced. Women are different to men in that once the pool of eggs is laid down, that's all there is for the rest of your life. Sperm keep regenerating. They keep reproducing. Unfortunately for women, evolution has designed that the egg numbers decline with age. So we go from that half a million eggs at the time you were born down to around 200,000 by the time periods begin at puberty. And every month from that point on, you're losing two to 300 eggs. Each month, when you produce one egg for ovulation, you're also losing 100 or two other eggs. Somehow nature sorts out the one that's going to be released and causes the rest to die off. We call it atresia or apoptosis. So what's left behind after all of that is your ovarian reserve, the number of eggs that are left in your ovary. 
that are capable of maturing through to the stage of producing an egg that is likely to produce a pregnancy. Over the 30 years from 20 to 30 when menopause hits and the menopause is the point at which virtually all the eggs have gone, you're going to have something in the order of 360 ovulations, 360 chances of having a baby. So that single egg is fine, but as the numbers of eggs decline, so does the quality of those eggs. So in addition to the ovarian reserve, there is also the issue of egg quality. But let's stick with ovarian reserve. You might have gathered that I don't think there's much relevance of ovarian reserve if you're able to keep producing one egg a month. But if you have low ovarian reserve at 20, it's unlikely you're going to get to the age of 50 to have a menopause. It's going to happen 5 or 10 years earlier. So that obviously has implications as to when you should start having babies. So knowing ovarian reserve is, you know, can be useful. The other area of infertility where ovarian reserve is important is if we decide we need to go down the IVF tract. What we do know is that your ovarian reserve determines how many eggs you're likely to produce in a cycle and it also determines what sort of dose of medication we need to give you to get the best possible result from that ovarian reserve. Now, how can we measure ovarian reserve? We have mainly three tools to go by. The first one is measuring a hormone FSH. This is pretty crude and really only starts to go up above the normal range if you're almost at the menopause. So it's not particularly useful in determining ovarian reserve in women in their 20s and 30s unless something dramatic is happening and something called premature ovarian efficiency is happening. But that's rare. The second method of testing ovarian reserve is to do ultrasound. Ultrasound of the ovaries using latest ultrasound machinery with high sensitivity, we can actually see very early eggs forming. They're called antral follicles. And they sit there ready to be stimulated on a monthly basis. And what we do is we count the number of antral follicles. In a normal woman with good ovarian reserve, she should have a dozen or so antral follicles in each ovary. Once you get below that, you're heading towards lower ovarian reserve. Again, this is really only useful in giving some prediction of when in the future menopause might happen, and it might be a bit earlier. Or, if we're going to do IVF, we need to give a higher dosage of drug if the ovarian reserve is low. The third test, and there's been a lot of publicity over this in the last five or so years, is a protein called anti-malarian hormone, AMH. And we're all very excited about this because the levels of AMH better reflect ovarian reserve. That AMH levels decline over the years just as the numbers of eggs decline over the years. It parallels very closely the egg numbers. So measuring AMH can give us an idea of ovarian reserve. 
it became sold as a method of knowing how far ovarian reserve had declined, whether there was a need to move forward quickly for fertility treatment or at least getting pregnant in case your ovaries failed. The initial enthusiasm has declined a little in that the times when low levels were reported but normal pregnancy rates occurred was quite clear. So basically a low level doesn't mean you won't get pregnant. So any woman that's gone out and had her AMH level tested and it's low, don't panic. It's not necessarily saying that things are bad. And what we've also discovered is that there is things, there are things that reduce the AMH levels that don't mean they're short of eggs. Being on the contraceptive pill is one of those. So don't get your AMH level measured while you're on the pill. You'll just scare yourself. After having a baby, again, AMH levels tend to be suppressed for the next six months. There are inaccuracies with it. It's certainly not as sensitive as we thought it was going to be. Once again, its major use, why fertility specialists do it on a regular basis, is to help determine the dose of hormones if you were going to have an IVF cycle. It certainly is useful for that. Indeed, one pharmaceutical company has just released a new form of FSH, the dose of which is purely determined by the AMH level. You put it into an app and it tells you what sort tells the doctor what level of hormone he needs to prescribe. So it does have quite a positive effect in helping in IVF. In women over 40, AMH levels can indicate that it's time to stop if they're having multiple IVF cycles. A very low AMH is indicative that egg numbers are small and in fact unlikely to produce a pregnancy. Just to confuse the issue, however, there have now been a number of publications showing that the relationship between the chances of natural pregnancy and an AMH level are not particularly strong, that you can have a low AMH and still have a normal pregnancy. So again, don't necessarily panic if you have a low AMH level. So today we've talked about ovarian reserve, that it's an inevitability that over time ovarian reserve declines ultimately to a zero level where menopause sets in. We've talked about ways of measuring it, but most importantly, if your GP in particular does an AMH level and it is low, don't let them panic you. Get them to refer you to a subspecialist in reproductive endocrinology and infertility who will take you through the meaning of it and take into account all the factors that might be contributing to it before you start panicking and moving on to rapidly go to IVF. It's not the answer. And don't forget that you can access all the previous episodes by going to our website www.theivfjourney.com and select IVF Journey Podcast from the navigation menu. Thank you for listening to The IVF Journey with Dr. Michael Chapman, the podcast which helps couples negotiate their way through the IVF journey all the way to parenthood. You can also ask questions by contacting Dr. Chapman's rooms on 1800 111 483 or by emailing him 
michael.chapman at ivf.com.au.